So you you are not recorded, and I am. Of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well. Thank you, Gerhard, for the very nice introduction, and thank you for attending this, uh, this event. I'm really honored to be here and talking about these kind of things and having such nice friends and, and colleagues. So as Gerhard has uh, said, uh, I, I work in Udine. Udine is a very small town, 100,000 inhabitants town, in the uh, northeastern part of Italy, close to Venice, between Venice and Trieste. Um, Trieste is on the on the southwest, southeast, Venice southwest, and north we have Austria and east we have Slovenia, and so we have very good wines, decent food. Um, my hat today is as president of a very small company, a spin-off of, of the university. Uh, we are three partners, three computer scientists. I am a computer scientist. Um, two and a half employees for the moment. And, uh, and we do basically um, consultancy and provide some services dealing with quality uh, engineering of software systems. My, my own background is on usability and user, user interface design, which is what I teach. Um, but uh, one of my partners uh, is a software architect and deals with quality of uh, software architectures, uh, aspects dealing with uh, how, how you cope with legacy system, how you cope with the technical depth, how you cope with uh, the domino effect that occurs when you start touching something and then you don't know how the ripple effect uh, goes on on other components, etc. And um, Let's see, um, our clients are software houses or other, other companies that develop their own uh, software components. And uh, for the moment, we have only Italian customers and the situation might change soon, I hope so. Uh, and that is uh, who I am and uh, what I do. Uh, today, I would like to talk about software development, which I'm sure all of you have something to do with it. Software development has the goal uh, of we, we would all would like to develop software that is of high quality, that is developed within the time, within the budget that has been planned, and uh, software that satisfies the needs of the customer, of the users, secondary users, um, who else would use that software. A stakeholder need is an expression of the business problem uh, that has to be addressed in order to justify the, the construction of that product of the software component, uh, software system. Uh, now, the, the key um, part here is a, a expression of the business uh, problem. So uh, you need to understand what what has to be done by the person that, that, that is going to use that software. Oh, by the way, um, please uh, ask any question whenever, whenever any, any doubt uh, arises or you have any, you want to say that I said something wrong, etc. Go ahead. <laughs> the, the, the livelier it is that is the presentation, the better it is for everybody, including myself. Uh, there are I'm sure many of you have seen these kind of pictures. 
and having 20 eyes looking at you, uh, your, your brain works in a different way because you are focused on, on your goal, which is having this machine working, and you don't see uh, what is around. You have a tunnel vision, uh, a conceptual tunnel vision. It's not the eye, it's the brain who doesn't see other perspectives, other opportunities, other possibilities that are around you because you are focused on, on that prey and you have to catch the prey, the, the problem to be solved or, or the danger to escape, etc. And so um, that is why uh, doing these kind of things uh, under stress uh, lead to poor success in general. You have to be uh, quiet uh, in a nice place, maybe not drinking too much wine, <laughs> but uh, in order, in order to, to achieve the maximum of, of your potential in, in general. This is what I say, keep saying to my students, but they don't hear it. So, uh, this picture tells you that there are different minds, different perspectives, even different languages spoken. The analyst speaks a certain language, which is not the language spoken by the customer, because they don't understand each other. The analyst speaks a certain language, which is not the language spoken by the designer, which is, he uses a language which is not the one spoken by the programmer. There are misunderstandings. There might be misunderstanding. You are probably used to write uh, requirements or read requirements, software requirements in big books or lots of chapters with uh, the system shall do this and the system shall not do that, uh, etc. They are spelled out as good as we can do, but uh, understanding them, understanding how they interact with each other, if they are contradictory, if, if there are gaps, if uh, they are described at the same level of abstractions, if they make sense while putting to put together, is challenging. It's challenging because that might not be the proper language, the proper, the, they might not be the proper concepts to, to bring, uh, to bring um, at the surface for understanding what a system should do. So, one one part of the problem has to do with uh, risks, so uncertainties and negative consequences of events coming out of these uncertainties. So risks dealing with, uh, with the product. How do we know that all those requirements describe uh, completely and in a certain level of detail, a certain level of detail, the system that has to be built and to make sure that the system is the right one? So uh, we don't know if it is the right one, if there are something that some gaps or some contradictory statements or wrong statements. Uh, we don't know if, if I'll, I'll be mainly talking about interactive systems. Uh, we don't know if users would accept it, not the customer, the users. Um, we don't know if users will be able to use it in the end. How many mistakes will they make or how fast they will, how productive they will be in using the system. Uh, would they be able to achieve what they expect to achieve? So, meaning, is the system catered towards their needs? So, in general, these are difficult questions to answer, but they are critical ones. And they affect or somehow um, are associated to product risks. We don't know whether we are building the correct system, the right system. A different category of risks are risks dealing with the process. Software is very uh, malleable uh, material. It's easy to, to, do, to, to change it and to have, to have it do different things, behave in a different way, or 
do process in a different way information. But correspondingly, the development process is also very complex. And so uh, there are many things that can go wrong, technologies that don't talk together or that are difficult to interoperate, uh, people that don't work together, people that don't work with that technology. That don't have any, any enough skills, or um, somehow they they don't uh, go well together. There might be misunderstanding. There might be process inefficiencies. So uh, uh, risks dealing with the process itself rather than the product. The problem is that we have three blocks of things. From one side, requirements trying to describe what needs to be built. Rarely in software, we deal with the same problem more than once. So we have a new problem with new concepts, new aspects, new constraints. Uh, rarely requirements are stable. <coughs> it's a fact that requirements change. Change because the, use, the market changes, change because technology changes, change because there are different um, uh, how to speak, uh, preferences by users. They, nowadays they tend to use tablets, uh, applica mobile applications. Uh, five years ago it was not so, so common, ten years ago it was not, not there. So these things uh, change. Technologies also are another important block. They are more and more complex. There might be unexpected interactions between different technologies when you put together, they might be more or less suitable for the specific problem being tackled. So we have, we have developers that are very experienced using AngularJS, but maybe AngularJS, one particular framework for developing interactive user interfaces for the web, um, but that framework might not be the most suitable one for developing the particular application that we have in mind. And then we have people. Um, people in the development team, people in the deployment team, uh, people like clients, like users, compared to um, developers. And they have different uh, languages, they talk dif differently, they have different perspectives. Uh, I recently participated to a conference, to a, to a talk, to a seminar actually, together with a psychologist, uh, talking about the psychology of, of developing of software development, um, because again, uh, there is this, the big problem is misunderstanding. And misunderstanding in terms of concept, but also misunderstanding in terms of human behavior. I expect you to do something, and uh, because you don't do it, then I'll, I'll make certain kind of assumptions, and, and that might ruin the way in which we as a team would work. And, and so there are plenty of things like this, and in my experience, most of the projects, software projects, fail because these psychological problems are not properly dealt with by, by managers or by the owners of the company, etc. So these things also interact. Requirements, technology, and people together create additional uh, chaos. Risks have to be managed. So the, the um, track says, on the road to success, there are no shortcuts. 
unfortunately, there are no shortcuts. I mean, you have to handle the risk uh, from the front and, and pay attention to them from the beginning and keep monitoring them as, they, as the, the process uh, evolves. In software, the ideal situation would be something like this. In this chart, you have on one side product uncertainty, on the other one, you have process uncertainty. High, high is the top left uh, corner, uh, low uncertainty is the top right, the bottom right uh, corner. So ideally, you would like, as time goes on, both these kinds of risks, both of these kinds of uncertainties to reduce. You expect to know in a month from now, you expect to know more about the product that has to be built, and you expect to know more about the software development process as it goes, because of the technologies that you applied, that you used, or the people, new hired people that, that you put in the, in the group, or new organization that you put there. So you would expect something like this, a very neat um, decrease of both risks. If you do a waterfall approach, if you follow a waterfall approach, what happens? Something like this. Apparently, you write this big book full of requirements, and after you, you, you've written it, you say, okay, I understood what the product to be built is. And you start working, and then the, hopefully the uncertainty about the process decreases over time. Until you start doing integration testing, until you do acceptance testing with the customer, and then you discover that it was not the system that had to be built. So you are, I wouldn't say back to square one, but uh, I mean, additional work is needed. So the product uncertainty go up again. If you're lucky, process uncertainty remain as they are, and so you have only one kind of risk to, um, to pay attention to. What to do? Agile management of software projects is one way to do. Why it works? It works because it, is a, it uses a combination of different, different aspects, very different from a waterfall approach. So development is requirement-driven, meaning you don't have to write a book full of requirements. You have to specify the, your requirements, but at different levels of um, granularity, depending on the moment in which you do it, and you sort of approach it in a very uh, empirical way, because this is a process, we are trying to govern a process, to control a process, which is very unpredictable the development of software. And so, because of, of all the uncertainties, uh, of all the interactions that are there. So you, you have to follow, well, if, if you do agile development, you follow an iterative approach where there is a, a feedback loop that, has, uh, that is very short, that would allow you to observe what is happening, and if it's not going in the right direction, steer it, take some actions in order to steer it in, in another probably more profitable uh, direction. So to do that, you need to focus on requirements because that is some, somehow characterizes the product that has to be built, the kind of deliverables that you have to produce. Planning is not something that you do at the beginning with a huge uh, Gantt chart and is not centered on activities, but is centered on deliverables. 
and planning is done mm, at different stages in different ways. For example, in Scrum, which is one way for, for, uh, for doing uh, agile software development, which uh, is somehow uh, summarized by that small picture. Uh, in Scrum, you would do uh, iterations which are like two weeks long. You start today, and two weeks from now, you expect to deliver something. Your team is expected to deliver something. Uh, what? One, two, ten different requirements, which usually are specified in terms of user story or features. And um, they might be small enough in order for your team to be able to design, implement, test, document, deploy, if needed, the, those two, three, ten features. Okay, so, so this, is, this is the general idea. You, you, you um, organize your development process in terms of small chunks that can be worked upon in, in those small uh, iterations. In a certain sense, each iteration is a small waterfall cycle by itself, waterfall um, uh, approach by itself. You do everything there. You refine your requirements, you d do design, you develop, etc. Uh, so work is organized in, sh oh, I said uh, planning is distributed because you do uh, um, a planning meeting at the beginning of this iteration. You do a very short, in Scrum, uh, a 15-minute uh, meeting at the, the beginning of every, every day. And you do a reflective meeting uh, in the, at the end of the, of the sprint, of the iteration, to, f to figure out what went wrong and what went fine during those two weeks in order to improve the process itself over time. Uh, each iteration real, uh, releases a potentially deliverable um, block of, of the system. And uh, the development team commits to deliver it. So if, if somebody finds out that uh, almost uh, at the end of the sprint, uh, testing is not enough, then everybody helps the test engineers to complete the testing in order to release what was um, committed. Now, this is in the ideal world. In certain cases, of course, this is not a suitable approach. It might not be a suitable approach where, when your development team is not, or, or the kind of application that they're building is not suitable for uh, um, frequent refactoring. Because if you d uh, develop every two weeks a small chunk of a system, you are forced to re um, revisit all your design choices in terms of the databases, in terms of the architecture, in terms of the user interface. Um, at each uh, iteration, and not all the systems and not all the people are suitable for doing this. You have to have very good uh, designers, software designers, in order to produce software system in an architecture such, as, such that this uh, frequent refactoring is not uh, a pain. Yes? What kind of examples? Of what? Oh. Oh, it wouldn't work in a in a big project where there are different different teams located in different parts of the world, so different uh, time zones. So it's difficult. SKA. Uh, it would not work at that level of, of size because it would be very difficult then to produce a coherent uh, architecture and a coherent user interface in, in this way. 
you, you cannot split the, the problem in, into small pieces and assume that development of each small piece would produce a globally coherent system, consistent system. Surely, though, you still be able to run this kind of development with smaller chunks of it, you wouldn't necessarily run it on a high level. Yes, but then it requires a higher um, management effort in terms of coordinating these teams and what they do and how, how they see their own part of the requirements. And this is not going to be easy. Uh, I would say some, some systems I think is, is inherently, I mean this is not software, but hardware systems, like building a bridge or yes. constructing a big tower, it's very difficult to see the impact of what you're doing in the beginning and whether it's going to work. But on the other hand, th those processes are much more certain though. So you can... Yes, yes, they're more, more predictable. Much more predictable, so... Yeah, also for software system, for example, designing the user interface or designing the software architecture is something that is um, sort of um, an, an horizontal effort. You can think of chunks of the system being released at different iterations, but you might want to think of the system architecture and the user interface as a sing in a single block. And that is not easy. So um, if you if you would do a scrum, if you would follow a scrum approach, the approach would not um, let you do these kind of things easily. You have to force it somehow. Um, Feature-driven development, which is another school of thought, um, allows you to to have these kind of first uh, iterations that are catered towards the architecture. And I would say the user, they don't say it, but I would say it, uh, the user interface. And then once you understood these, these big pieces, make some, made some design choices about this, then you could go in developing and testing and releasing single, single pieces. Another topic is especially important for interactive systems is uh, user, user or usage centered development. User-centered focuses more on users and usage uh, focuses on what they have to do. So I tend to prefer this second one. Nothing, this is not uh, uh, astronomic science. Uh, there are three basic ideas. You have to pay attention since the beginning, since the conception of your project, to what, uh, uh, what kind of users will be using the system and uh, trying to understand their needs. Trying to understand their needs means also trying to understand the context in which they will be doing their work. For example, right now I'm here in South Africa in Cape Town because we did some work within SKA and part of the work was trying to understand how operators of the telescope work. What do they need? from the system? Do they need to see each single parameter that is uh, produced by each single antenna or device or software component that processes the data? Or somehow we can, we can describe the workflow in more abstract terms and uh, think of a user interface that, that somehow supports these tasks. So, and and this, is, this is part of what we did in um, so, uh, trying to understand the needs uh, of the users. The second pillar of uh, usage-centered design is that you have to think of quality of the user interface in terms of usability. 
usability. Um, I don't provide here a, a definition, but uh, you can you could think it has something to do with how easy a user interface can be learned, how easy it can be used, op operated upon, uh, how easy um, it can be retain, um, recalled by memory. So you you recall how it works, and and therefore it's it, its behavior is more predictable. The third pillar is, uh, again, an iterative development process. You start by planning a user interface prototype that is being developed to investigate a certain theory, a certain idea, a certain hypothesis. You develop the prototype in whatever language and system you deem suitable, and then you put the prototype under test with real users and find out what, what works and what doesn't work. Putting it under test with real users is what we did with you the other day. Uh, I showed to Herod a, a, a picture, a, a PDF, with the sketches of, um, of a user interface for the, for the potential control room of a, of a telescope, and asked Herod, tell me what, what you see in this picture. Tell me how you would interpret these numbers, these names, these labels, these buttons. I said, how would you use this button for? Or how you would do this kind of activity using this, uh, this picture here? And, uh, and he told me his own ideas, his own interpretation of this. And from what he told me, I learned that certain choices that were made in the design of that sketch was not, were not appropriate. The color of the buttons, the, the way in which certain, the number of alarms were, were, was, uh, was uh, put there was not the appropriate one for a person like, like, like him. I do this kind of, of, of tests which are very cheap. I, I can put together a sketch in maybe an hour, and then in uh, five minutes I can, I, can put it, I can print it out and put it under test and learn by doing how, uh, how to improve uh, that particular screen or that particular user interface. There are several uh, usage-centered design techniques that can be used. You can define user profiles. You can do contextual inquiry where you sit close to the operator or the control room, for example, and observe for two hours how it works, how he or she works, with whom he or she interacts, when, who triggers that particular process, for what reason, what is important, what is less important, what is urgent, what is less urgent, and so on. So you learn by observing the, the person doing um, the activities. You can interview ask questions. You can draw affinity diagrams. I'll show you in a moment what I mean. You can define what are called personas and scenarios. So particular usage scenarios and particular, I would say, stereotypical users that might somehow represent the, the spectrum of all the potential audience of your system. You can do sketching and storyboarding, which is what I did when I, when I talked to Hera the other day. Essential use cases, task modeling, conceptual design, user testing. It's a long list of different techniques. All of them are very cheap. They are not technological. You don't need technology to do these kind of things. You need a brain, uh, open eyes, a uh, piece of paper, and, and a pen, basically. You could use eye tracking devices to do user testing. But, uh, you know, if, if you do, if we did that, that kind of thing that I did with you with uh, eye tracking, um, I interacted with you like uh, 15 minutes or so, asking questions, I said 10 minutes. Yeah? If I would uh, do eye tracking, then I would have 15 minutes of video to scan 
study, uh, to annotate, etc. That, that would take me two hours at least. So there is a cost-benefit uh, that, that you have to take in, into account when, when you decide what kind of technology to adopt to do so, some of these activities. In most of the cases, a piece of paper is what you need. So one technique is sketching and storyboarding. Uh, this is a sketch. This is another sketch. Slightly more technological. This is of a digital thermostat in Italian. Uh, this is a storyboard, so a, a sequence of sketches telling you what, what, how, what is the flow if, uh, within a certain usage scenario. So a user will start there and then by pressing a certain button would go there and by inputting a certain information the screen would show like that and so on, so on, so on. What is the value of building these kind of artifacts? Well, they materialize design ideas. They materialize what a book this big of requirements has difficulties in conveying. Because the user that sees this, with a little bit of help, understands what is this user interface for, what, what, what the meaning of that button, what the, the meaning of that, those numbers is. Ah, and uh, which would be very difficult to understand from a, from, from, from a big book of requirements. So the real benefit of sketching is for materializing ideas, which is useful for the designer itself, himself, because designers, what they do, uh, they explore the problem by designing. They develop these kind of things just to explore the different, the, the, the space that they have to um, cover in, in, in the design. Uh, tonight at dinner I can draw these, these things while waiting for the waiter to bring me dinner. Uh, tomorrow morning I can draw two other alternatives of this, so I have three alternative designs from which I can choose. There might be slightly different ideas, and, and I can choose from maybe what I deem to be the best among these three, which is a, um, an approach called parallel design. Secondly, it's a, it's a, me a sketch is a means for communication. It doesn't work only for me as a designer. It works for me when I show to you what I, what I mean. Thirdly, it's a support for doing user tests, what I did with, uh, with Hera the other day. Uh, I used a sketch slightly, well, more or less this kind of uh, level of uh, visual refinement to understand the, whether the placement of the, of the buttons and the icons were understandable and the data was understandable, made, made sense or not. So don't underestimate the value that you get by doing these kind of sketches. Sketches don't cover the whole interaction structure of your user interface, of course, because they're manually built, the data is canned, it's pixels, uh, so they are not relatively poor interactive. You can set interactive areas, so when you click in a, on a screen here on a PC, they, they move from one screen to the other, sort of PowerPoint slide. But uh, more than that uh, cannot be achieved with, with sketches. But still, the, because they are very cheap, you can get a lot out of them. Sorry, just yeah. um, how often is it that, that, because sometimes people would say sketch versus a formal URL diagram or something is ambiguous. It, it can cause misunderstanding. How, how often would you find that being a problem, the sketches? Sketches are... You can think of sketches as sort of uh, rudimental prototypes. They are not specifications. 
uh, they are a prototype. Pro all prototypes are built to be thrown away. So to explore an idea, to maybe help testing an hypothesis, and when you, once you've learned the outcomes, then the prototype should be thrown away. You don't have problems, for example, with people misunderstanding what you're trying to grow. <laughs> well, then it might mean that uh, that you made some mistake in terms of designing. You, you have chosen a wrong icon, or you have placed a wrong button in the wrong screen. It's it's a message. It's the value that comes out. I was also listening to you. I was thinking exactly the same. So what you're doing is probably it's very early in your project first iterations. You attack all the high risk items and misunderstanding any user requirement, the critical stakeholder requirement that is a high risk. You want to identify that as early as mm -hmm. possible. So you're basically building a very cheap prototype and then you sit with a customer or the stakeholder and you do validation. Exactly. Exactly. And that is where the communication and misunderstanding bit comes in. Exactly. Which I think, you know, the chances of this being misunderstood might be smaller than giving a UML diagram to somebody and yeah. expecting him to understand it. Yes. Because you're sitting with somebody and you're actually gauging interaction and adapting the design, which may be in your head at that point in time, but the design somewhere which your prototype is based on, based on the feedback. Exactly. Especially if your counterpart is the end user of the, of, or, a, or the customer and not another engineer. Exactly. Now you want, you want to sit with a primary stakeholder uh, who represents the requirements around that. Yes. When, when a stakeholder, when a customer or, or, a, or a user sees something like this, he or she understands at once if it is the correct software to be built. Because it's a materialization of, of, of the user interface. And it, it takes it out of, the, uh, out of the physical design of a system into the functional space as well. So instead of thinking in terms of their own solutions, you actually take them out of that to talk about functionality. Because I find with stakeholders normally they come to you and they try to communicate the requirements in terms of what they know. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily what they need. Mm -hmm. what they mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And often they, they try to help you by telling you what kind of widgets they want to see there, which is a, a task of a designer to decide that. Mm -hmm. And they should tell you what, what they need. My joke is, and what I like about this as well as my inside joke is, the customer doesn't know what he wants. Mm -hmm. That's what he doesn't want. Yes. Show yeah. something and he'll tell you what he doesn't want. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> that, that's uh, perfect. A perfect summary. Thank you. Another technique is what is usually called conceptual design. Now, you are engineers. Um, you might imagine to, be, to become plumbers for the next five minutes. <laughs> Look at these four, four different user interfaces for the same system. This is one. This is a second one. Third one. And a fourth one. This has a thermostat. So two, two um, wheels to determine the flow of water and the temperature that, that, that you want that water to come out. So structurally, they are different. Which is better, which is worse? Which is cheaper. Okay. Cheaper is another, another um, attribute. Which is cheaper? The first one, The first one, cheaper. Why? Well, what? I was not responding to that particular one. I was going to say it depends on, on what the purpose. 
Precisely. So uh, when somebody tells you, asks you what is better, of course you, you tend to answer, it, it depends on what you mean, it depends on the context, etc. So in terms, of in terms of cost, the first one is better, of course. In terms of how, which one would you buy, independently on, on cost, independently on the color, so the color is just a... Um, the third one, meaning that one, the, the one with the single lever. Hmm? For aesthetics, for aesthetics, okay, it's one, one criterion. End users value aesthetics, right? Depends on the interfaces. You can use two, three, and four on a balance system, but uh, you can only use one on an unbalanced system. Unbalanced? Unbalanced pressure. Okay, now we, you know better than I do. <laughs> the, 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 the domain. Okay, okay, that could be could be one one solution. I, I don't question it. <laughs> yes. Okay. What else can be said? What is the essential difference between these uh, four models, uh, four systems, four user interfaces? Do they do the same thing? Do they let you wash your hands with water at a certain temperature? Yes. It's the, the, one, the first part is two different sources. Yeah. And? You're, you're, you're translating in English uh, what you see there, but the consequences of this difference, what is? What are? The one is conceptual, and the, the other one What do you mean? What do you mean? It's logically what, logically what you want is you want something that gives you water at a certain temperature to wash your hands. You want a certain amount of flow, at a certain temperature. You don't care whether your house has a pipe, a, a circuit that has water at uh, 10 degrees and another circuit that has water at 60 degrees Celsius. And then some, there's some, something that mixes or, or doesn't. So the first system doesn't do even the mixing. You, you need a bowl to mix the water. So you need an extra device, an extra activity, something else to do this task of mixing the water. The first system is a sort of one-to-one -one translation. The user interface is one-to-one -one translation to the actual implementation of the system that you have in your house. A pipe of cold water and a pipe of hot water. And your poor users are forced to be aware of this implementation. The last one is probably one that uh, does the most for hiding the underlying implementation. If you use that one, you might not know, except for, for the two pipes that goes out, so except for the aesthetics, uh, you might not know that there are two circuits of water within your house. You don't care. You decide what is the temperature, you decide what is the flow, and you're happy. How about the other ones? Well, the, the yellow one does the mixing for you, compared to the first one. So, uh, in terms of um, people dealing with the UI design would say that a, a task has migrated from the user to the system. The system does something more. The user is not required to mix the water. How about that guy over there, the third one? When I, when I 
when I showed this, this, this picture, most of the people say, oh, I would like to, to get that one, especially in Europe. The old one, you can't see what, you, you can't estimate what the temperature is just by looking at it. You cannot, with the yellow one, yes. you cannot estimate the temperature, of course, no, no, not even with, 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 the, with, the, with the first one. It's very difficult. And in fact, what you do, when you have a shower that has the, this kind of user interface, you get the correct flow and temperature by trial and error, by approximations. The third one is the only one you can use with one hand. So, <laughs> exactly. And it's, in terms of the user interface, it's easy to understand interfaces. Easy to understand, fast to use, uh, mono hand. You don't need to label things in hot and uh, cold, even though you have to know whether, which, which way to turn the lever in order to get hot water or cold water. What else can be said? You, you also intuitively understand that if you want to increase the flow, mm -hmm. you, you lift it more. Mm -hmm. How comes, how comes that, that you lift for increasing the flow uh, instead of uh, pulling it down? I think, I think you, humans feel that if they put more pressure on something, they're going to get more... Okay, this could be, this could be this, I don't have the answer, but this could be an explanation. How about security, safety, actually? Safety from? from being burned by hot water. Or, or being frozen by cold water. <laughs> You can close with, with any part of your body, with, with your elbow. You can close or shut, shut the flow very quickly. Can you do it with, with the other guys? No. Have you ever tried to use the thermostat one with your hands full of soap? <laughs> it's a pain. It's a pain. <laughs> So what's the value of that one, except for status symbol or aesthetics or the high price that you have to pay to Your get... Your neighbor doesn't have one. <laughs> Sorry? Your neighbor doesn't have one. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a sort of digitalized version of what you need. You say, I want water at 32 degrees and maybe two liters per second or something, half a liter per second. So, okay. And in fact, the safety features in the thermostat-based uh, solution are, are um, related to, to this small, um, what, what is that, lock, um, well, device that, that, that allow you to, to block the, um, the system when it reaches like 35 or 40 uh, degrees and you have to press the, the button in order to increase the temperature over that threshold. They had to, in, to put this security feature um, because otherwise that design was not optimal from, from that point of view. So you see, we, we've covered several attributes of, of I would say, user experience. Uh, aesthetics, uh, functionality, the mixes, um, which tasks are covered, how quickly one can operate, uh, safety, so on, so on, so on, so on. The thing that I wanted to point it out most was that that one reflects the structure of the system. So what system engineers or software engineers could, could define in terms of um, functionalities of the system, etc. So the user interface usually is not a thin layer of coating that is put on top of, a of the implementation. The user interface has to hide the implementation in order to provide support for the tasks that the user has to do. Now, you've been plumbers for five minutes. Now, become carpenters, please. 
Another metaphor for user interface design is the metaphor dealing with the materials, tools, and interaction context or spaces. This is a possible uh, workplace for a carpenter. You see pieces of the material, the wood, paint, paintings maybe, paint. You see tools. Um, there is a relatively little structure in terms of uh, how the workflow is organized. It looks like being uh, something, a tool like Photoshop that gives you everything, all the tools that, that, that you might need in different toolbars. Everything can be customized and, and put there and you, as a designer, have the task in mind. You have to know what to do and the system provides you whatever tools you want to use at that moment in time when you are doing something. The task is in your mind. It's not, the system doesn't support specifically a, a certain task. If a system based on a wizard it sits on the other stream uh, that tells you what to do at what point with what uh, kind of uh, tools and materials. Another carpentry would be something like this, more like a factory, industrialized factory, where you see the different interaction contexts, the different windows, the different screens in which a user can do a certain thing and then the work can move on, on another screen and then the work can move on another screen and, and so on and so on. So user interface design is something like this. You have to decide what are the materials, what are the tools, and how these are spread in space and time across different windows in order for letting users achieve what they want to do. So it's, it's trivial to design a good user interface if you have understood well th these kind of things. Okay, so we've covered agile development. We've covered briefly uh, usage-centered uh, design, and I showed you some examples of, of um, some of the techniques and approaches that can be adopted. I wanted to briefly touch another topic, which is testing a software system. Because, you know, I've spoken about uh, user experience. Uh, so user experience basically uh, deals, aims at producing joy of owning and of using a certain product. Apple has done a very good job with the iPhone and the other products in, in doing that. So to produce joy, the system has to be relatively usable. U users have to be able to do what they want in certain amount of time within certain tolerances for errors and so on. And the system has to behave properly. Has to do, has, uh, there should be no blue screen or bugs or crashes, uh, etc. Or wrong data being shown. Sorry? Yes, yes, exactly. So, uh, functional testing is an, a necessary um, activity that has to be, to be uh, carried out for software. Uh, for finding bugs, but not only for that to estimate quality of a product, of a release of a product, to identify critical areas, to estimate the um, cost of customer support after this thing has been released. So testing is not necessarily aimed at finding only bugs. It's a general process that, that provides a, a sort of torch that gives light and directions to developers on where to put additional resources, time, for example. Functional tests can be done at different levels. 
unit testing, integration testing, uh, system testing, intrasystem testing with different channels. Developers can do them. Uh, a, a quality assurance team can do it. Beta uh, users can do it. There could be different mechanisms. So tests can be scripted and done manually. Tests can be non-scripted, and which is uh, a way m still manually but non-scripted, and it's, it's called uh, exploratory testing, which is probably one of the technique that uh, gives you the most in terms of new bugs being found per per uh, time period. Um, tests can be automated. Um, Tests can be run at different phases while the, the software component is being developed or after a fix of a, of a previous bug has been uh, put in, in place. So you do regression testing to avoid that quality re, re, uh, re, um, decreases um, while uh, new releases are put forward, uh, before a release, while operating the system and so on. The problem that we as a company find very often with our customers, which are software houses, is that testing is not sufficient. And so uh, systems are released with poor quality, leading to customers that are unhappy, to damage to the brand, to higher, high uh, support costs, high fixing costs for the bugs, uh, etc. Another problem is that the development process itself is, is inefficient because if, I, if you are developers and you develop today a certain feature or part of it and tonight you put it under test and tomorrow morning you find out whether it worked or not and if it doesn't, you, have, you are required to fix it, then the, um, you didn't forget your assumptions, your ideas about how you developed that feature and so it's relatively fast for you to find out the problem, diagnose the problem and find, find a solution. If, I, if you develop today and, and the thing is put under testing a month from now and you find a bug and somebody tells you that that thing is not working while you, you spent uh, the three weeks doing other things, then it, it requires more time, more effort, and it leads to poorer quality in general of the solution. So the, the, faster, the quicker you find a bug with respect to the moment in which the bug was put into the system, the better it is in terms of a process and in terms of quality of the resulting software. Another facet is that usually companies have poor control on quality. They don't know which are the critical areas in the application that they're releasing. They don't have a clue of what is the quality of, of, the, of that release or how uh, that release would impact negatively uh, their users. And those, they, don't, they are, cannot monitor the, how quality evolves over time. So we as a company develop a, a system and technology which we call the one-to-one -one testing, and uh, which allows for web applications and for mobile applications, allow end-to-end uh, -end tests. So it's a black box testing. We don't look inside the system. We use the system as it is. Uh, through the user interface, we do uh, system tests uh, that are usually done for acceptance. Uh, we run these tests automatically, so they, they are fast, they are convenient and reliable because they, of course, they repeat the same outcome at the same time. Uh, you can test at each release. It's um, you can do it as often as 
your team and your organization somehow is uh, capable of, of um, developing the software. And um, one problem with developing software that tests other, other software is that you are going to develop two different software systems that require maintenance, both of them. And uh, because we use a model-driven model approach, we somehow short-circuit part of, of the maintenance tasks that are due to the testing system itself. We use UML state machines, state charts, to model the, the dynamics of a user interface. Each state would be a screen, and each arrow would be a user action. And we develop a compiler that produces software, source code, that somehow uh, leverages this and allow uh, a tester to write a test script that is a very high level of abstraction. So, uh, and details are hidden, so if developers develop, change the user interface, these changes uh, require a recompilation of the model, and in half, uh, half a second you get uh, maybe 100,000 of lines of code being uh, regenerated that hide that, um, that uh, change that was done. So basically what we found out with our clients is that uh, these test cases can be run as often as needed. Uh, they cover realistic scenarios because the, being very high level, it's easy for a manager, not, not a programmer, a manager to understand what a test case does and if it covers or not a certain requirement. Uh, they can easily be extended. Um, test reports are generated automatically by the, the system that, that uh, we developed. And they can be quickly changed, modified, as soon as the user interface changes. So some of our clients do agile development, so in, in two weeks' time they change part of the user interface in a matter of one or two days from, from the moment in which we realize that the user interface has changed, we adapt our model, change the model, and recompile and give them a new suite of um, tests that, that run as before. So the benefit is basically better control on quality in general. So uh, you can save a lot of money in uh, testing and in uh, costs in general. Uh, this is mainly for regression testing. Uh, for tests, uh, there is this uh, thing called the, the pesticide paradox. So if you keep using the same, same pesticide, that pest, the, the more you use the pesticide, the less ef effective it is to, to, to catch the, the, the parasite. And the same holds for software bugs. The more you, you run the same test, the fewer the bugs it will catch. Because bugs evolve, <laughs> escape. And, uh, and so to catch more bugs, you have to vary the way in which the test is being run. You have to change the environment, you have to change the data, you have to change the order of the activities that, that you, with which you exercise the system. And that requires human intelligence, usually. And so when I earlier mentioned exploratory testing, this is one way of doing, a relatively structured way of doing that, uh, so that you can change this factors and achieve a relatively high coverage. If you use uh, automated tests, including these ones through the user interface, what you can do is automate regression testing. So reduce the time needed for do regression testing, but don't expect to find more bugs. So the conclusion is that usage-centered development uh, is 
something that can reduce product risks, as you said earlier. It is cost-effective. Most of the techniques are very easy uh, and can be paired to agile uh, development approaches to reduce process risks. So the, the two things basically are um, compatible and com in part complementary. They address slightly two different aspects of the software development process. And um, test automations can be used for uh, coping with quali functional quality, in a sense, and when done in an appropriate way, uh, do not increase the maintenance uh, effort of the software system. And with this, I've finished my presentation, and I thank you for your patience, and I'm open to questions. Thank you. Any questions? Yep. As you mentioned right at the beginning of your presentation, that agile management is one way of managing software development. What are the other ways? Oh, waterfall. Risk-based. <laughs> <laughs> More, more structured, um, more structured, unified um, process, where the different activities are spread in different ways or over time. Yep. If you evolve because of the, the pens, do you keep the main pen size that you are using or you, you evolve with the mm -hmm. You are referring to what is called the, the fragility of tests. Uh, so to the extent that the behavior of the system doesn't change, you can keep the same test that you had before and exercise the system using them and expect that the system behaves in the same way. To the extent, so if, if talking about user interface. If the user interface has changed because the programmer has changed the div, the, I'm talking about HTML, has changed the name of the div or changed the, the ID of the button or maybe how the, the button is located within the DOM of the document, then the behavior doesn't change and you should expect that the test cases don't change, don't have to be maintained. Um, on the other hand, if the programmer added a new button to a screen, or removed the button, moved from, from a button from one screen to, to another, and the test was designed in order to, to exercise that feature, you should expect that test to fail. Of course. Otherwise, it will be useless. Was, was that an answer? Okay. Yep. What's the difference between spiral and agile? In Spiral, basically, you don't have the sprints. You focus on, on different, um, different risks at, at each uh, loop, but uh, you, you're not time-boxing uh, the development, and uh, you don't have this notion of uh, very short iteration that deliver a, a chunk of a system that can be deployed. So, so that's a good compromise between waterfall and agile if it's in a bigger project or... Okay. It could be, yeah, yeah, could be seen Spiral from this perspective. Like a long waterfall which is sort of curled up into a ball. Sorry, sorry. Spiral, isn't it like a long waterfall which is sort of curled up into a ball? Okay, yes, could be, could be. <laughs> a circular thing, yeah. Uh, um, I was curious, and actually with Ferrat's question as well, in terms of plan-driven waterfall versus agile, and I, I think that the... Um, 
tutorial, in Kaisi tutorial some years ago, where a, a structural engineer, recently civil engineering, explained the benefits of using agile or uh, iterative development on large construction projects like bridges wow. and things. Mm -hmm. And the concepts which he worked on is still one of the biggest problems we sit with nowadays is complexity. And waterfall works really well if you sort of have a very good idea of what you're going to do and you need to go through a certain amount of steps. But on any project nowadays, um, complexity and understanding the complexity is one of your biggest risks. And there, I, um, so in terms of your development models, the ones I've seen sort of got plan driven on the one side, waterfall go through certain iterations. Then um, in case you, uh, um, a lot of people talk about um, having iterative type mechanisms, but what they talk about is repeating parts of the waterfall structure and then full uh, uh, evolutionary models where you go through the whole cycle and you let mm -hmm. it go. Mm -hmm. And the advantage in, in the whole risk reduction is the fact that you learn continuously as you go forward. So I'm very curious to know sort of what sort of uh, software or let's say complex type of developments work really well according to plan-driven uh, development because I know there are large teams, distributed teams that are using agile type practices even though they're in different time zones. Mm -hmm. as, uh, um, as I think you, you alluded, they need additional scaffolding. Yes. Um, which I like to call systems engineers, but they need people that can keep these different components together and make sure that the teams remain in sync. Yes, yes. Um, but like I said, I'm, the further I continue, the, uh, especially in software environments, the less I see value in, in a waterfall approach. One of the big values, last point here, is that waterfall works very well if your construction cost is high. If you build a bridge and you realize I needed to move it five meters to the left, it's a costly exercise. Mm -hmm. but because of software, the code is actually just a type of documentation. Every time you press the compile button, mm -hmm. you produce mm -hmm. the product. Mm -hmm. and which costs you almost nothing. So because the construction cost is so low, you can use these rapid prototyping mechanisms to test and evolve. I think a key aspect is uh, stability of requirements and of course uh, validity of requirements. So as long as the requirements that you have are valid and stable over the time span of the project, then you could do whatever you want and probably a waterfall approach would be the most efficient way for, for tackling the problem. If requirements are not clear and or they might change, which in software they do <laughs> very often. Yes. Things change a lot faster nowadays than they Exactly, exactly. A waterfall approach uh, is um, ten, might lead to, to higher expenses and uh, over budgets and delays. And after a long period you arrive with a product which the customer didn't want. Yes. Unwilling to pay for and then you go into legal battle because you've got signed up documents because you froze the requirements. But it doesn't lead to a happy customer. Yes. And and those requirements might be the wrong ones. Spoke, uh, written in a bad language, uh, not the appropriate one. And so there was a misleading since the beginning that didn't appear, didn't show up. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I still think about. I don't want to just give you my opinion, but okay. I want to phrase this question and see what you think. But it seems to me, specifically in the, in the first slides you, you mentioned, was the, the problem is really um, uncertainty. So 
I think in, in all of the projects in development, there are things that are certain and there are things that are not certain. And to me, the things that are certain is the architecture. That shouldn't, that should not change. If, that, if that's the thing that's unstable, then yeah, I think you're in a very difficult position. And the things that does change, or that are uncertain about, no, I think are the stuff that you can... I think it depends. I have, I had, I had some clients that started developing uh, web applications, assuming that a certain architecture would work in terms of capacity, because they had a few number of clients. And then somehow the, the business uh, evolved, and they had a high, much higher number of clients, and that architecture was not suitable enough in terms of capacity. So they had to change the architecture of the system while the system was being used, basically. So um, it really depends, I think. No, I understand. How yeah. would you typically um, communicate to commercials around a project like that? Commercial meaning marketing materials? Uh, well, uh, costing, costing out a development. Because now, now you cost the development from one end to the end, from the beginning to the end, but it might change because you follow this approach. Mm -hmm. So you have a fluid design process, but also a fluid, a fluid uh, cost. Yes. And, and I mean, that's, that's the, the difficult part. You remember that I mentioned the... In, in Scrum, you have the, these um, uh, loops, you have a backlog, mm -hmm. you have these sprints, uh, you have a backlog of different features to be developed. So you might do, knowing that your team and their capabilities, how long they take for developing a certain kind of, and, and having a bit of experience, you might be able to get an estimation of how long they, they take to develop a new yeah. window, a new screen, exactly. And, and so you know how many features in a two-week sprint uh, they would be able to deliver completely from scratch. And so you can, if you have uh, 200 features, and then you do a very simple calculation, and, and you get this, this estimation of how long it would take. You can buffer the times in terms of saying, in, in at least uh, two ways, or three ways maybe. You can buffer in terms of uh, features that are critical, essential, must have, and features that are like should have or nice to have if possible. And so meaning your team would work surely for, work for developing the critical ones, and if you have enough time and money, you could, they could still work additional iterations on, on the remaining ones. So in, in a sense, you are buffering in terms of uh, requirements. Certain requirements will be covered 100% and other requirements will be covered less than that. If you made a good choice on which features are critical and which are not, most of your customers will be happy. Some of them would not be so happy, but at least you will be able to sell the system to, to the first ones and get some revenue back before completing all the development. So this is an additional advantage of using, adopting an agile method. But it, it, it should also be a, a continuous negotiation as well, because as the... The customer has to trust you, yes, you yes, want. yes. The cost, there's a cost aspect as well to that. So, yes. And so, so from starting off a project like that, the right idea would be to involve the customer in that, in that way of thinking. Indeed, well. indeed. And telling him that, look, you're in for this, Right now, we're going to try not to make it a roller coaster ride, but 
Um, I mean, it's to, to the benefit. Yes. Right now, I don't remember, but there is a company in London uh, who uh, developed a, a template for an agile contract. So, uh, legally, they, they put in legal terms this notion of iterations, deliverables for each iterations, and critical features, etc. And, and they are sort of selling this, this, uh, this contract to other, to other companies that they want to adopt. And, and they say they appear to be successful. Uh, I know of a company in my town who adopted that approach with some of their customers. And, and as you said, it requires a, a lot of trust yeah. from the customer. But you know, uh, when you start developing in short iterations, and in short iterations you start developing pieces of the system that you can show to your, to your yeah. customer, and at some point where you put together the minimum viable system that is enough for the customer to do something, <laughs> then the customer starts believing you. And, and so the, the, the trust problem disappears. Yeah. I want to comment, that, uh, comment on that in terms of um, traditional type RFP approaches where somebody comes and they use the waterfall. And what I've seen work really well is you go and you actually do initial scoping but using your agile mechanisms and, uh, and stuff like your uh, planning poker and things where you can very quickly scope out roughly how long this would take. And you actually give the customer a quote and say, okay, these are all the features you've wanted. So you have a longer, a couple of sprints up front, but you've got a longer planning session. You say, this is what you wanted um, using traditional waterfall, but we're going to do agile. So we're going to give you two things. Um, and the, the guy that spoke about this, he said, we give you money for nothing and change for free. Change for free is easy. Until we start working on something, you can change it. No ECPs, you don't have to worry about paying us for it. You can change whatever we haven't started working on yet. On yet. And money for nothing means we prioritize according to what the risk is and what you say the most important features are. Um, you've committed to a project cost of three million. If you want to stop after one and a half million, and run with a working product which you've developed, you can do that. We take 20% of what remains and you get the 80% back, which you haven't used. And that is, that's, both of those are very powerful arguments in terms mm -hmm. of especially people are used to having a waterfall yeah. type approach. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking on my feet just in terms of the, the uncertainty of the outcomes. Um, risk has got basically two components. The one is the uncertainty of the outcomes and the other one is the severity of the outcomes. Is customer satisfaction the only severity that's involved or is there other, other factors in terms of the, the severity of the consequences? I can, give you, I can give you an example in terms of control rooms for operators in, of a telescope. <laughs> uh, the telescope is very expensive. You want, if you are, if you are charged with the responsibility of running the, the telescope, uh, the head of, of the thing, you want uh, uh, to use each single hour uh, of, of the system to produce science. A mistake by an operator might mean that uh, a certain observation campaign that lasts uh, maybe two days is uh, a walk because some software because a buffer was overloaded and the software system wasn't able to to keep all the data that the, that was collected uh, during that observation and so it's not only user experience it's uh, the consequences of user errors 
human factors. Uh, it's the um, for, for this kind of a system. For other systems, it could be the, the efficiency, how s people that that uh, mm, that are the, um, how it's called that, that provide help when, when you call uh, a call service. Uh, they, they have to be very quick in finding out who you are and what are your previous uh, requests were, etc. So you want to emphasize the productivity. So really not only user experience and user satisfaction, it could be much more. Yeah. I was thinking maybe of um, well, a, a benefit of using Agile where the, the sprints are shorter is maybe on developer morale. It's not nice to work a year on something and then it gets shut Definitely. down. Definitely, yes. Work on something and, you, and it gets shut down, that consequence is much, much less. Yes. Definitely, definitely. That, that's a satisfaction of the developer. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Thank you. There was another question? Yeah, I just wanted to know about the, the sketches. Do you, is it a good tool, um, or how do you deal with it when, when you don't get a validation from your requirements back, if you sort of get to refer things like cover or maybe... If, if, if you use a sketch like this, uh, users understand that the person to which you show the sketch understand that this is a very rough artifact. They assume that you spend very little time working on it, so they are very prone to criticize it. If you show them a very nice picture, then they might assume that you have worked two, two days on doing that, so they might not be so good in or so prone to tell you, I don't like this, I don't like that, uh, I don't understand this one. In something like this, it's, it's obvious that the designer hasn't spent a, a huge amount of money. Uh, secondly, it's equally obvious that they were not made big choices in terms of color themes or text font, uh, etc. So, so um, there are things that you can test with a prototype like this, there are things that you cannot test. I've had some people saying, I did the sketches that you told me, and then build the final system, and then discovered that uh, people weren't able to, to distinguish, uh, certain people were not able to distinguish uh, red and green. Yes, if you did the sketches in grayscale, uh, of course you wouldn't be able to, to catch the, those kind of problems of, of column blindness. And uh, so it really, you built a prototype to test a hypothesis and, and of course you have to make some judgment in, in terms of how you build the prototype. But does it, when it's more rough, does it take more emphasis to the real user requirements or does it actually take more emphasis to the... Would you want it more rough at the beginning so you actually yes. Yes, because you focus on a big picture and you try to find out whether the thing matches the mental model that the user has about the task, the activity, the system, etc. The more, uh, the more you go on with the design and the higher fidelity would be the, the artifacts that you need to develop in order to, to put your ideas on the test. So you wouldn't use a sketch like this to, to test whether the buttons are big enough. It's not the right artifact. Big enough meaning uh, if, if the user could hit them at within a certain time limit or could make a certain number of errors if they're too close one, one to each other, etc. So it requires a bit of judgment. Yeah, yeah man, it's in light to what I, what I asked earlier about the, the fact that it's almost ironic, but when you, when you draw these sketches and it's informal, then obviously you run the risk of not being exact and therefore being ambiguous. Yes, but okay. Ironically, I misunderstood then. In my mm -hmm. experience, actually, 
you communicate better when you do that. And I think maybe it's because you, you, the context is there. So the person does, he's in the same wavelength as you speak. Mm -hmm. uh, if you try to do it very formal, then it's almost, it's diffi more difficult to, to understand what this guy is saying. So in my yes. experience, it's what I found. So. Yeah, it's true. Uh, they said uh, that sketches are used for evoking ideas. You could use for testing purposes, but you have to be very careful on, on, uh, on uh, as we said just now, to, to decide what aspects are you going to put under test. You might easily misunderstand the sketches that, that you built and think of being able to test certain things, whereas you didn't, because of the kind of artifacts that they're using. I just wanted to actually compare that. Uh, it was just actually, I think it's a hypothesis, like what's the purpose of the sketch? So, yeah. I mean, I think we can't address everything probably in one go. We have yeah. versions of it. Uh, it we have to probably have to be very clear about what it is that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've not seen it for a few times that people, they, they were systems thinking as well, they they push you actually to say, don't, do not try and go for formal, you know, just put what's in your head and put it there. And as I say, and then for some reason people, understand what you're saying, uh, even though you're not trying to be exact, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. actually communicate better. Whereas you try to write requirements, for example, and you know, okay, now, is this verifiable? Is this ambiguous? Uh, you know, then you write a requirement like this, it's impossible to understand, mm -hmm. but it is amb unambiguous, you know, it is very uh, verifiable, but nobody can understand it. So, so it's just a up, up to a certain point, though. Yeah. Uh, if it is specified in a um, formal language, then I would believe you that it is uh, non-ambiguous and yeah. uh, verifiable, maybe verifiable. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, uh, if, if you use English, if you use English, yeah. then you're bound to have some ambiguities <laughs> put there. Anyway. Yeah, oh yes, a natural language, I would say. Yeah, sorry. It didn't mean anything about the English language. <laughs> is it sometimes advisable to give two different sketches of similar information because sometimes you give a, a sketch to an operator or to someone and you actually shape their mind in thinking that is an optimal view but if you give something totally different they think either either way or in between and so, so you yes can you can you can contrast two different designs for the, to, uh, against the same person and and ask the person not really whether he or she likes one more than the other but how the person would do a certain task using one or how the person would do the other the same task using using the other design there is the problem that the person learns so by doing the first exercises the first exercise something about the domain or the kind of problem being solved is learned and so the person could take advantage of that and and do the second task more easily so if you do a formal experiment you would do you would randomize the 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 order in which you would use the two the two artifacts with the first user you would use artifact a before artifact b with the second user you would alternate and so on and even more complex designs if you do experimental experiment, formal experiments. Okay, well, uh, okay. so I'm going to appreciation. We gave you some oh. really good South African wine that you can take you. back with Italy. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for participating. <laughs> <laughs>